Okay, well, I really feel, feel like I can't let you escape Gaia House without hearing about dependent origination. <laughs> no one here gets out without hearing about it. <laughs> I mentioned it the other night, um, dependent origination, Paticca Samuppata. This particular teaching is probably the most profound in the early canon. In many senses, um, it's the one teaching that runs through the whole of Buddhism, either explicitly or implicitly. The idea that, of course, everything depends on causes and conditions for its existence. Nothing comes into existence out of nowhere. Absolutely nothing is free of causes and conditions. This is basically why Buddhism um, historically has been, in a sense, a non-theistic religion or a non-theistic spiritual practice, simply because to have something like a god would be to have something that didn't depend on causes and conditions for its existence. And so the Buddha is saying, actually, no such thing that doesn't depend on causes and conditions can be existent. Everything depends on causes and conditions. Sangsara depends on causes and conditions, and the awakening process depends on causes and conditions. So this is both a a diagnosis of the problem again, and in many ways also a solution to the problem in showing you a way out of it, showing you a possible way of beginning to break this chain of causal dependency, um, which is at the heart of sangsaric life. Remember, I spoke about sangsara, whirling around. Here we go, sangsara. It's it's like a roulette wheel. Spin it round. There you go. And it has a particular feeling tone to it, and that feeling tone to sangsara is dukkha. You know, this word which we keep on coming back to ever since the first evening of returning to again and again and again, which of course means something like unsatisfactory or dissatisfying. So everything within sangsara ultimately has an unsatisfactory feel to it. And this is, in a sense, the problem that the Buddha is diagnosing. Right from the very inception of his teaching, there is this diagnosis of the problem, basically saying, you've got a problem. We've got a problem, this problem is dukkha. How do we get into this mess? How do we get into this dukkering mess? Uh, Might be a way of putting it. And Paticca Samuppada is actually the Buddha's diagnosis of how we get into the mess. And also within this is the solution, in the sense, to how we get out of it as well. So this is why it's the most profound teaching. I personally don't think it's actually that difficult a teaching to get your head around intellectually. Where the difficulty lies in actually is, as with impermanence, learning to practice it learning to see where it's arising, learning to see how it operates in your ordinary life. That it's difficult to get, in some senses, to really live experientially. Um, You find the very famous sutta in the Diginakaya, in the Long Discourses of the Buddha, something called the Mahinadana Sutta, which is the great discourse on causation. In this particular sutta, right at the beginning of it, Ananda goes, Hey, Buddha. I understand dependent origination. Yeah. He says, it's as clear as it's clear. And the Buddha goes, Ananda, think again. 
And you can imagine him saying in his incredibly portentous tones, Ananda, think again. This teaching is profound. Yeah. And when the Buddha actually ever says something is profound, he usually means it's really difficult. <laughs> really difficult to actually understand in an embodied sense, not in an intellectual sense. I think Ananda, who's actually his close disciple and also his cousin, uh, the Buddha's cousin, um, Ananda represents, in a sense, everyone. He's, he's kind of the fall guy. He's always making silly remarks uh, throughout the canon. Even when the, even when the Buddha's dying, um, basically, the, uh, Ananda's sort of leaning against the, uh, against the post, wailing at the Buddha's demise, and the Buddha says something like, have you actually been listening to me all these years? <laughs> <laughs> You know, didn't I say that all compounded things will pass out of existence? <laughs> you know, so Ananda actually represents most of us. Most of us take these teachings on board intellectually, but we very, very rarely take them on board in the sense of really embodying them, understanding them and living them, and seeing them exemplified in our ordinary, average, everyday existence not in retreat centres, but in our ordinary, average, everyday existence, just as we do things day to day to watch the arising of certain things and the conditions that give rise to them. Dependent origination, um, well, the first thing to really note about it is it's a series of dependencies, and the image that the Buddha uses to describe this is, is, is corn stooks. You know the way they stack corn in fields in Asia? Anybody seen this? They just lean them against each other. And so actually, they, you know, the kind of weight is, is in the leaning of them against each other, towards each other. And the same here is with dependent origination. It's a series of dependencies. Each thing depends on the other thing within the chain, if you like, of causation, although I hesitate to use that word. So it's a series of dependencies. And in many ways, what I'm going to present to you is, in a sense, a rather linear fashion of it, although it's done in a circle because actually all of these things are interacting with everyone within the circle. And it's not just this series of the way I'm going to present it. So it's very difficult to present it in any other way. Also, this teaching is considered to be so important. It was a content, supposedly, as far as we understand, from, certainly from the textual sources. It was the content of the Buddha's awakening. This is what he discovered on the night of awakening. When he actually woke up, he saw supposedly dependent origination. In other words, he saw how this dukkering mess came about, how we got into the condition that we live in. And this is made very, very clear. There's a little short text in the Pali Canon, and, and part of it which is called the Kudakanaka, which is like all the bits and pieces weren't collected in the main parts, but there's some very important texts in this. And in this text called the Udana, there are three small suttas at the beginning, which is the content, basically, of the Buddha's awakening night. They're all to do with the night of awakening when he sits under the Bodhi tree and supposedly gains this massive insight. The first basic um, udana or sutta here actually deals with dependent origination starting from ignorance going all the way through to old age and death. That's the content of the first, Udana. The second content is going from old age and death all the way through to ignorance. And then the third Udana goes 
all the way from ignorance to old age and death, and old age to death, all the way back to ignorance. So it's showing, actually, that it works in both orders. It goes in both directions. I think it says a lot about how important it is that it's right at the forefront of this text, this particular thing. The teaching on dependent origination is scattered throughout the canon. Probably one of the main sources for it is this sutta that I've mentioned in the long discourses of the Buddha called the um, Mahanadana Sutta. In this, you won't find the way I'm going to present it because actually it only presents nine links in the chain instead of 12 links in the chain. Um, The Buddha doesn't seem to be particularly married to any one model very strongly and seems to use it in different places in slightly different ways. So in this particular instance, he presents nine links in the chain of dependent origination rather than 12, which is the version I'm going to talk to you about this evening. Okay, let's start off with the happy state, ignorance. (laughs) I mentioned a little bit about this the other night, ignorance. Well, this is the term in Pali, avijja or avidya in in Sanskrit. Avidya is, as I said, just reminding you of what I I, um, said to you the previous evening, is avidya is really about not knowing. But it's not just about not knowing, it's about not wanting to know. This is the primary aspect. So there's a kind of almost positive content. I really don't actually want to know about a lot of things. I certainly don't want to know about impermanence. Not really. Um, And certainly not if it's my impermanence. (laughs) That's one of the things I really don't want to take on board. I don't particularly want to know about not-self, and I'm not absolutely wild about Dukkha either. (laughs) So so these things, we don't really want to know about them. Um, We hear them, and of course, in many senses, is what I've been saying about uh, a lot of our apprehension of these teachings, is we kind of nod our head in acquiescence. And it's an intellectual acquiescence, it's not an existential acquiescence to this intellectually we can take on board, and I say even dependent origination, which is one of the more complex teachings, isn't that difficult to get your head around intellectually. What is difficult with all of these teachings, both dukkha, with these three marks of existence, dukkha, not-self, and impermanence, is actually to really understand how they operate in our day-to-day, ordinary, average, everyday lives. This is where we have to see them in operation. So every moment of every day actually could be, I don't say it will be, but it could be a moment of practice you know, to actually view these things in operation, to actually see them as they arise in these ordinary situations just of daily life, in your interactions, in your work, and your home life, to see them coming about, to see them arising. That everything depends on causes. Let's go back to that for a second before I deal with the rest of ignorance. That everything depends on causes is, a very, is very, very good news from a Buddhist point of view. And I don't, think you, don't know if you realize this. Because if things depend on causes and conditions, if we identify these causes and conditions and eliminate them, then, if you like, the disease will cease. So the disease here is sangsara. So the ceasing of sangsara is the basically the dealing with greed, aversion, and delusion. 
You know, this is what it's doing. We're having to deal with greed, aversion, and delusion. That wheel of life, the wheel of actually the wheel of becoming, really more than the wheel of life, the wheel of becoming that I've kept referring to throughout the week in various ways, has at its very centre, iconographically, a cock, a pig, and a snake. These represent these three things: greed, aversion, and delusion. And in the really good versions of this, you find the the cock and the snake emanating from the mouth of the pig, which is meant to represent ignorance or delusion here. Sometimes you see them going around in a circle. This is not such a good, because actually the other two, aversion and greed, arise from delusion. So when we come to look at the, really, the very start of this chain of dependencies that the Buddha is talking about, we find at the very beginning of it, if you like, with no suggestion of any origin of it, just that it is, we have ignorance. There's no coming about, there's no sort of primal starting point of ignorance. The Buddha's just saying, it is, deal with it. You know? Not, because actually we'd like to go into metaphysical questions, wouldn't we? Where did the ignorance come from? <laughs> Doesn't help us very much, does it? Um, asking where the ignorance comes from. In fact, there's a, there's a, a, a lovely sutta in the uh, Majjhima many of you might know about, called the Malunkya Putta Sutta. In the Malunkya Putta Sutta, in this sutta, it has a parable of a man who's hit by an arrow. And he falls to the ground. They rush up to him and say, shall we get the doctor? His friends rush up to him. And the man says, no, before you get the doctor, can you tell me who fired the arrow? Can you tell me what caste he came from? What village he came from? Um, what is the arrow made of? You know, what is the tip made of? What is the shaft? What is the wood in the shaft? What are the feathers on it? What was the poison put on the arrow? And the Buddha just says, the man who asks these questions will just die. <laughs> you know, don't ask irrelevant questions. I mean, being the basic, um, if you like, gist of what's being said here, don't ask irrelevant questions. The Buddha's making a big joke out of it. When we ask metaphysical questions, we take ourselves away from the problem. It's not that, where does ignorance come from? Ignorance is. This is where we find ourselves, in thrall to delusion and ignorance, you know, in the sense of not wanting to know and also the nescience of actually not having the requisite knowledge that we need as well, so it's, it's a case of both dimensions: not knowing, not wanting to know. It's like having a pair of glasses on with a particular tint, and somebody says to you, "Well, the world isn't blue." Yes, it is, because you refuse to take your glasses off. You know, you've refused to take them off with this particular tint. So the, the world is tinged with this particular wash, with this particular colour, and in a sense, what we're still looking for because we don't quite believe it. And in many ways, we just don't get it. I mean, very simply, we just don't get it. We don't get the fact that all things are impermanent. We just don't get the fact that a lot of what we experience, most of what we experience, is dukkha, because it's unsatisfactory. The world actually is structurally incapable of providing you with satisfaction. It's actually structurally incapable of providing you with it. No matter how hard you look, you're into a futile chase for satisfaction because the world will not provide you with satisfaction. It will always do something to upset you. Yeah. Have you noticed that? I mean, the most, you know, even, when you think, even when you think things are stable, the world will do something to upset you. Yeah. Why did that happen? Um, these kind of questions. 
So, ignorance is really about understanding, or not understanding these things, not really seeing them, not wanting to explore them, not wanting to investigate them. And in that state, of course, which is a state of radical confusion, we keep going round and round in circles. This is, if you like, this is the fuel behind samsaric existence. Um, Everything has to have a fuel. Everything has to be fed, in a way. Um, The Buddha, again, uses a particular thing. He calls it nutriment, ahara in Pali. Everything has to be fed. Sangsara is no different. Sangsara needs to be fed. We keep feeding it. We keep feeding Sangsara in many ways. We keep feeding it through not wishing to take the blinkers off, the glasses off, whatever particular metaphor you want to use, by not actually beginning to see the way things are and living the way things are. As a result of this, of course, we engage in action in a very blind sense of the word. When we are blinded by delusion, when we're blinded by ignorance, we stumble around and what do we do in our confusion? We make an awful lot of errors, an awful lot of mistakes. This is what I call dukkha with compound interest. (laughs) We just keep on doing it and keep on adding to it. Um, Not quite believe. We don't quite believe, for example, that the very things that Sangsara offers us um, for example, let's just take the big part of Western society which I've talked about, materiality. We really do not quite get the fact that materiality won't provide us with happiness. So we keep on doing it compulsively, don't we? Have you noticed that? We keep on doing it because we don't quite really get it that it won't provide us with the kind of happiness we're looking for. There is still the mythology out there. There is something... That's going to make me happy. If only I could get it. Yeah? There's something external to myself. If I can only acquire it, I would cease this searching. It's a huge mythology. It's the mythology that's founded basically based in consumerism, in many senses. You notice how the adverts run, you know. You know, a lot of the adverts are telling you, you know, treat yourself. Be good to yourself. You deserve it. <laughs> All this type of advertisement is really encouraging that, that there is something here that is going to make you feel really satisfied and really happy. Well, at least until the next model comes out. Yeah, that's basically what it's doing. So it's stimulating the appetite, it's stimulating desire, it's stimulating craving here. Now, we fall into it because of, because of this delusion, because of this ignorance. I actually personally don't like the word ignorance. It's, it's, you know, it can be quite offensive. You know, if you actually say to somebody, you're ignorant, it's very offensive in English. Um, but actually, I think it's this fundamental state of confusion, of not really wanting to see with clarity, wanting to come out of the confusion. The confusion is somehow still enchanting. There's still something enchanting about a lot of sangsara. Um, we haven't become disenchanted with it. We haven't become disenchanted with much of what we do. We haven't become disenchanted with the things that still hold out this promissory note, this promissory note that they actually might provide us with some degree of happiness or satisfaction. 
So understanding ignorance as a fundamental thing is to understand the driving force behind sangsaric existence, that which feeds the rest of sangsaric existence. In many ways, it's the deepest and darkest part to get back to. It's composed. Now, it's being Buddhism, you've got another list. <laughs> it's composed of factors. It's composed of factors called asavas. Um, this is a virtually untranslatable term into English, um, but they have a go, a lot of the translators, and it often gets translated as taints, cankers, outflows, and there's a few others, and I can't really quite call them all to mind at the moment, um, but none of them really do justice to what this word actually sort of has implicit within it, which is outflow goes a little way towards it, but it's the outflowing of a kind of effluent that we have within us. I mean, literally, I mean, if I'm being slightly crude about it, it's the crap within that comes pouring out of us. Um, I mean, I always get this picture of radical incontinence when I talk about this. <laughs> yeah. And actually, we hear using incontinence here in a moral sense. You know, we're radically incontinent. We're incapable of keeping our crap to ourselves. It pours out of us. You know, so much so, actually, you probably come across this idea that, you know, there's often in, in, the, in the four ennobling truths, the third ennobling truth is usually translated as the cessation of dukkha, or, or just cessation. It's called dukkha niroda in Pali. The word niroda actually has a direct implication back to the asavas, the asavas of, of ignorance here, because the word niroda means to stop leaking to actually stop leaking. And it goes back to the agrarian economies of the Buddha's day where you had a paddy field and to keep the water in, uh, you had to shore it up to stop stuff from leaking out. And this was called Niroda. Yeah. And again, he was drawing on this kind of idea here. So actually, somebody who has awakened has stopped leaking. It's not a very edifying thought, is it, <laughs> in many ways? But I think, it's very, I think it has a very kind of uh, very gritty feel to it in the sense of we un if we understand this, we understand what's going on because we don't keep our rubbish to ourselves. It comes pouring out of us most of the time. And the content of, of Avidya is, is these asavas, and these asavas are classified as Three or four, depending on whether you look at the Abhidharma, which is another set of texts, or whether you look at the Pali Nikayas. The first, of course, is a Vijasava, is the Asava of ignorance, which actually we don't keep to ourselves. The Asava of confusion. We like to spread our confusion around. You know, I joked about it the other night and called it confusionism. You know, this is what we're doing. We're adding kind of confusion to confusion. Then there is something that we all know about, which is called Kamasava, which is actually the asava of sensual desire. Now, you'll find that one coming up in any number of the lists that I've given you. Sensual desire. Entrapment by uh, a craving for what the senses give us. You know, not that having senses is a problem, it's the craving that goes with them. So sensual desire is actually a major facet in our entrapment. You know, that we always want, beautiful things around us, beautiful scenery, beautiful objects, and that is part of the entrapment. It's actually much more profound than that, but this is certainly a major dimension to it. 
the craving for lovely food, you know, the craving for nice clothing. You know, all of these are material manifestations of it. The craving for beauty in other senses as well. All of this is part of sensual desire. Then there is the craving to become, what's called bhavasava, the craving to become. We're always desiring to become something or someone in this world. Except we're doing it minute to minute most of the time. Desiring to be something. Desiring, for example, to be somebody who's likable. Somebody who's made a name for themselves. Somebody who is this, somebody who is that. Most of our mental states are about attempting to become something and hold on to it. But you attempt to hold on to anything that is a state such as being likable. Can you preserve being likable all the time? Most of us can't, can we? (laughs) We slip out of it quite quickly. So Bhavasava is this craving always to become. It's actually this desire that I mentioned the other night of wanting to become something much more substantial, something much more solid in this world. This craving to become also can take on the form of careers and professions, identities. All these. We can actually, even in our sickness, in our illness, become something out of our set of symptoms. Even that can become an identity for us. And then finally, there's one that's added in the Abhidhamma, which is actually what's called Ditasava, which is the Asava of opinions. Yeah. We are opinionated, and opinions are not knowledge. Opinions are simply opinions. And actually, part of the problem is opinion blocks us. This actually often is translated as view, blocks us from seeing things. Seeing the way they are. This, this phrase that the Buddha keeps using again and again and again throughout the text. Yatabhutam, actually, to see things as they really are, not as we would like them. Now, what, of course, views and opinions do is actually they distort. They distort what we see. In many senses, and I think I mentioned this, in many senses, the Buddha's idea about views and opinions is don't have them. Don't have views and opinions, because actually views and opinions are always an impediment, a blockage, an obfuscation of our visual processes, if I'm using that as a metaphor. So, if you like, at the very fount of Sangsara, there's not a promising start. It's not a very promising start in the sense that, actually, this is supposedly if you like, what is there when we are born is ignorance, sensual desire, craving to become, and a whole load of opinions already. And that's the traditional Buddhist perspective, that actually no child, for example, is a blank slate or a blank sheet when they come into the world. They're already written on um, with all this stuff. Now, whether that's true or not, I kind of hold up my hands and say, really don't know, and actually, in many ways, don't care. Because I think what this teaching more is about is about this life, about where we are right now and how we deal with it. From all that we know, for as long as we can remember, we have had this stuff around for us. And it starts being formed at a very, very early age. You know, if you know, we're talking about the formation of... You know, not wanting to know about certain things in life. 
A lot of that might be cultural. A lot of cultures, you know, for example, death didn't used to be a polite topic of conversation in the Western world. It's become less, uh, less sort of um, taboo. But you know, it's still yeah, considered to be slightly morbid if one talks about death and the possibility of death here. And there are many, many other topics as well. So there are some cultural inhibitions as well which prevent us and actually condition us to not wanting to know about certain things. Interestingly, in the history of Western philosophy, you don't actually, until really the 20th century, getting any major philosopher talking about death until the 20th century, which is quite astonishing when actually the history of Western philosophy is almost as old as the history of Buddhism. You know, and two and a half thousand years virtually to get to the 20th century to find a philosopher actually tackling the topic of death full on. You know, it's quite extraordinary. Then, of course, what we're speaking about is that even our opinions are formed. Our opinions are dependent. The opinions that we form, our views of life, if you want to put it that way, our view of life is formed. It's formed out of the conditioning process, out of the interaction. How do we know where some of our opinions come from? We like to think our opinions are our own, but they're often influenced by media, by others, by gossip, by chatter, by all sorts of other phenomena whereby our views are formed. Becoming something in this world, I think in the Western world, is again a very cultural phenomenon, to become something, to make a mark, to be somebody, to be something substantial or someone substantial in this world is a big part of a lot of Western conditioning uh, for a start off. And, well, you know, come out of us pretty well if we think of the material stuff is part of the capitalist system that we live under. You know, we, our appetites are being constantly stimulated in many ways for lovely things. So this is the unpromising start that we, in some senses, if we start to examine it, we'll find out for ourselves that this is actually where we are. This is not meant to be negative, it's not meant to be depressing, it's just meant to be realistic. This is where we find ourselves, full of views and opinions, full of the desire to become something, Full, basically, of lots of sensual desires, and you can examine that on a very, very day-to-day basis. Just watch your mind going out for craving for certain things, for sensual pleasures. Even if it's the little treat you come in from work and give yourself. The craving immediately in the morning, that's a very good one. Watching what's your first thought, it's usually in a cup of coffee or the cup of tea or something in the morning, that your mind immediately goes out for something sensory, some kind of sensory stimulation. To watch that in ordinary life. And then, of course, the the avidya itself, the ignorance, is much, much more difficult to catch out. Much, much more difficult to catch out, simply because we're averting our gaze from so much that we really don't want to know about in life. Gosh, that's taken me half an hour. <laughs> Just to get into ignorance. I don't want this to turn into a marathon again. <laughs> but, of course, this leads into the developing of formations. Um, developing of what's called sankharas or sanskaras. Just as a kind of, just to note as I go through some of these terms, none of these terms were really invented by the Buddha. They're all drawn from Indian society at the time. 
often they were related to religious practices of the time, and sanskara is a particular one in Sanskrit form. Sanskaras were basically ritual duties that one did. They were kind of religious rites that one engaged in. These were called your sanskaras, and particularly associated with what in um, Brahmanical Hindu society in ancient India was a sacrificial fire. Go to Hindu modern Hindu temple, that was what you'll find. You'll find a sacrificial fire around which mantras are usually intoned and various uh, things are thrown on the fire as sacrifices to placate the world of the devas, to placate the world of the gods. The Buddha basically uses this term sanskara and perverts its meaning as he does with so many of these terms. It's very interesting the way he does this, you know, even just from a practitioner's point of view, to see the way he takes on a term and perverts it. So instead of becoming something like a, a ritual devotional duty, he turns it into effectively making it a habit. Yeah. So actually, these so-called ritual duties from the Buddhist perspective are simply habits that people have got into. Now, the word sanskara or sankara in the Pali form is actually derived from the word sankata, which means to actually to form something, to make something. Yeah? So what we're engaging in is making things continually. We're making and forming habits which actually form, in a sense, our destiny, yeah? if not dealt with. Yeah? So if we engage in constant habit and habit reinforcement... Well, it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy where it ends up. You know, it ends up with something happening. You know, if we form good habits, then one thing happens. If we form bad habits, another thing happens. So sankharas are basically being formed and forming. And what we are attempting to do in the practice is actually understand some of the content of the sankharas by beginning to see them. This is what we've been doing in the practice. Beginning to watch, for example, um, the patterns, for example, of, of lust, aversion and delusion that arise in the mind on a fairly frequent basis for most of us. Yeah? These are kind of generic terms which cover lots and lots of obviously highly nuanced psychological terms, but basically can be just seen in terms of these three broad categories. Yeah, that keep on arising, and they'll often rise in patterns. So much so, if you do a lot of practice, you'll think, oh no, not that again, coming round, as it comes around for the umpteenth time, um, the particular pattern of neurosis that we have, as it arises yet again, uh, we get very familiar with them. Yeah. And perhaps one of the dimensions of this is acknowledgement, but also of progressive disenchantment with these patterns and pattern reinforcement that we engage in. In the iconography of the, of the Wheel of Life, you often find that the Sankaras are represented by a potter, moulding clay, moulding the clay up into a shape, and then the shape collapsing down again and being remoulded. So we're constantly moulding and remoulding our lives out of the same material, basically. And the way that we do it is by habit, sankharas. They're often just referred to as formations, which actually isn't too bad a translation of this. Uh, they are formations in the sense of they're formed in a certain way that bring 
about certain outcomes, certain consequences. So, in other words, in action, in life, and I mentioned again this in one of the other talks, of course, one of the things we cannot avoid doing, of course, is acting. And we act in body, speech, and mind. This action of body, speech, and mind is referred to as karma, using the Sanskrit term deliberately here, because that's the most familiar. So we're using, we're developing karma all the time. Karma has fruit. Karma is never at an end. What actually we think of as karma is mainly what's called the fruit or the vipaka of it. So the vipaka is the consequence for yet more karma. In other words, we act with that thing. So if I'm in a particular state... It's not really so correct to say this is, you know, as, as, which is a typically sort of Indian fatalist version of this. Oh, I can't do anything about it. It's my karma. No, it isn't. It's the fruit of previous actions. It's the fruit of previous actions, and now itself can become the stimulus for further action. So actually, it's not I can't do anything about it. It's now what can I do about it? Yeah. So if we don't do anything about it, in a sense, the fruit continues to work and work its way out in terms of certain consequences. When we act, of course, we can act in a way which is wholesome or unwholesome. We can make something positive out of a negative situation, for example. I can find myself in a very negative situation because of previous actions, yet I can make something out of that. Notice the word make. I can make something out of that. I can form something out of that which is much more positive and much more wholesome. Or I can simply, in a sense, not do anything about it, which is also doing something, because actually not doing is doing here, and that will have certain consequences as well. But they will be much more deterministic than if we actually take on board the fact I can do something about this. So when we start talking about sankharas and karma, please, please don't hear it in a deterministic fashion. It's only deterministic if we, in a sense, go, oh, I can't do anything. You can always do something. This is the whole point about the teaching of karma in general and the influencing of karma is that we can do something about it. That it's not simply fatalistic or deterministic in that sense. So those are the sankharas. The sankharas are operating. They're being fed by ignorance. So out of ignorance, with its composition of those three or four factors, ignorance is obviously influencing the kinds of actions that we're engaging in. So as a result of and as a consequence of that, a lot of the actions that we engage in would be very unskillful, both of mind, of speech, and of body. In other words, the things we do physically. They're going to be very, very unskillful because they're being fed by this not wanting to know, by this desire to be, by this sensual desire, and so on and so forth. I won't go into them all again. So that we basically live quite unskillful lives a lot of the time. However, the Sankaras don't get an entirely bad press uh, because within the Sankaras, of course, are wholesome habits that we might have formed as well, wholesome actions of body, speech and mind that we might have engaged in, and they will have consequences. Yeah.
So dependent, let's put it in its traditional form, dependent on ignorance arises sankharas, showing the close relationship between them. One is feeding the other. Dependent on sankharas, consciousness arises, which is often a puzzling one to most people, that consciousness is arising as the next link. Traditionally, the first two links are often taken about being the past, you know, ignorance and the sankharas or the formations are about the past. Now we're into the present moment, and the present moment is consciousness. And immediately as its object, because remember consciousness always has an object, consciousness is not a thing in Buddhism. Let's get this very, very clear. There is no such thing in, in early Buddhist practice as something that's often banded around, particularly in Advaita traditions, tradition, uh, tr- tradition of Hinduism, as pure consciousness. There's no such thing in early Buddhism. Consciousness is never pure. It always has an object. It always has an object. And it's rising moment to moment to moment. The fact that we have a noun, consciousness, it ought to be sort of consciousnessing more than consciousness. Yeah, because it's actually arising through six different forms of consciousness, basically. You know, through the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind itself. And it's rising moment to moment to moment. You know, don't ask me how you measure a moment, because I wouldn't be able to tell you. But it's arising in this momentary fashion. You know, always with an object. So what do... Mind, what does mind consciousness have? It has mind objects. This is what we're doing when we're looking at meditation. We're looking at the objects of the mind, the kind of things that are arising, the greed, the aversion, the delusion, the hindrances. The other side of it is we're also looking at the good factors of mind, such as the joy, the desire to investigate, um, equanimity, and all of these other factors of mind as well are also present. They are objects of mind and can be objects of mind. So consciousness is always arising with objects. It's always what's known in sort of philosophical terms as intentional. It always intends an object. It never arises without that. To even make the, the whole thing more complex, um, as Buddha Gosa, this 5th century commentator in the, in the Theravadan tradition, puts it, consciousness is like a king. It never arrives alone. It always arrives with a huge retinue. <laughs> The huge retinue of the mental factors which accompany consciousness. Now, those mental factors are what's called universal mental factors, factors that have to be there with every moment of consciousness. Factors which are occasional factors, which arise with consciousness, which means that they don't arise with every moment. Uh, They can be there or they might not be there, arising with consciousness. And then unwholesome and wholesome mental factors as well that arise with consciousness. So what you've got is consciousness and all these mental factors, which are called chitasakas, rising together. They all arise together. Consciousness here, being dependent on sankharas, has as its object, its primary object, its primary way of being, if you like, impelled in life, sankharas and ignorance. Those are its primary objects. Initially, those are the most proximate objects for consciousness. So consciousness is dependent on the sankharas. 
in many ways, the sankharas are also dependent on consciousness because it's a two-way thing. You know, if you wanted arrows passing between these, normally I do this with a board. It's much easier um, writing things on a board. But you can draw arrows between those two factors as you can between the next two factors. Between consciousness and the next thing which arises, which is something called nama rupa. Well, nama is about the closest you get in English to any Sanskrit Pali word. It means name, as you would think. Rupa means form. And what this actually means, without going into an awful lot of... um, kind of history and detailing this out. I actually spent a whole day quite recently in America just talking about those two terms, Nama Rupa, just seven hours just talking about those two terms because they're so rich in connotations here. But here's the simple version. <laughs> here's, the, here's the condensed version. The condensed version runs something like this, that Nama Rupa is basically the way the mind, which is Nama, and the body, which is rupa, is blueprinted for what is going to happen in our future. Yeah? So in this moment in time, we're constantly, if you like, reconfiguring or blueprinting what's going to happen both to our mind and our body. You could say in the future, but the future, in a sense, is the next moment. Yeah? We're constantly doing that. And if the blueprinting keeps on being reinforced... Then it gives rise, for example, let's take, let's take a rupa thing. If we maltreat the body and keep on maltreating the body, not nourishing it with proper food and things like this, this will probably give rise to sickness at some future point here. So nama rupa are being conditioned by the other, if you like, there's kind of the fuel from ignorance is draining through, or the, yeah, the fuel, the motivating force is draining through from ignorance through the sankharas through consciousness which is then conditioning future states of mind and body we're doing this all the time so the moment we act well the time we engage in reinforcing habit patterns we're creating actually very very solid habits for the future the more and more we reinforce them Ever notice how wonderful it is when you free yourself from a habit? How freeing, how liberating it feels when you break a habit, even a really minor one, you know, that somebody might have pointed out to you. <laughs> and it's very, very freeing, isn't it? And in a sense, all sorts of other things then appear to be possible in your life when you start to even break most a minor habit, a minor habit in this way. And really, in a sense, that sense, I think that feeling that we get of a degree of freedom that arises when we start to break a habit shows us how limiting habit is, how the sankara is operating through consciousness are laying down almost self-fulfilling prophecies for the future if we don't deal with, you know, actually, if we actually don't deal with those habit formations which we keep on reinforcing. So that's the very simple story. It's actually far more complex than that, but it's, uh, it's the very simplest way I can put it in the time we have available, that we're laying down this stuff for the future unless we start to deal with it. Dependent on Namarupa arises what's called Salayatana. Salayatana is actually the six sense spheres. 
the ways that we see, hear, taste, touch, smell and contact our mental objects will all be influenced by what has preceded it. Everything, the ways that we see, just don't think, we just don't see, we see through conditioning. We just don't hear, we hear through conditioning. Yeah? We just don't taste, we taste through conditioning. You know, and I could go on, I could go on through the whole sense. Sense spheres, is, they're called sense spheres because basically it's almost as if they enclose the object you know, which we have, whether it's an audible object, a tactile object, um, an olfactory object or whatever it is, it's almost as if the mind has enclosed round it, closes round the object and is interpreting it. We're always engaged in constructing reality, never in perceiving it. We're always engaged in this construction, particularly in the sangsaric world. So we don't only taste something, taste comes with what? Associations, conditioned factors, yeah? things that have been conditioned by what has gone before. Visual objects, where we just don't see. We see often through, for example, let's take the main conditioning factors of sangsara, greed, aversion and delusion. That's how we see. Yeah. However, let's, let's add some good news in this rather depressing low point of the conversation. <laughs> um, we can see, of course, through kindness. We can, of course, see through compassion. And these are things that we can develop, if you like, as more skillful, more wholesome ways of conditioning our sensory processes. Because remember, all of the things that we're talking about are processes. They are not things. I mean, if I had my way, I'd like to add ING to virtually everything here, but it just looks so unfortunate and ugly in English when you do that. You know, so we're not actually, we, well, actually we are seeing, you know, hearing. There is actually something going on. There's a process going on. It's not just that we hear, see, taste, touch, smell, and engage with mental objects. Okay, I'm going to get a little bit further on and I'm going to leave you with a cliffhanger. You'll find out who did it tomorrow night. (laughs) Because the time is getting on rather rapidly. The next part of this is dependent on the six sense spheres arises contact, pasa. So... Because we have the senses and the senses are interpreting, we're always contacting objects. You know, even if we were put into a sensory deprivation chamber from a Buddhist perspective, we'd actually still be contacting mental sense objects. Even there, we, we're never not contacting something. We're always in contact with something. And this becomes the start, in many ways, of what becomes very interesting. Because out of contact, and we've been here because we've been there for a day and a half, arises Vedana. Dependent on contact arises Vedana. So the moment we contact something, there is pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neither pleasant or unpleasant. Well, I won't go into the pleasant and the unpleasant because I said quite a lot about that when we were doing the practice, of beginning to scan down through the body and beginning to see the kind of Vedana that's arising in the body. Because there we're actually specifically talking, and just to kind of highlight it again, we're specifically talking about when there's something pleasant, we might find the mind goes out to it, 
with craving, grasping after it. When the mind contacts something which is unpleasant, what we can see often is aversion arising. Yeah? Familiar from the practice? The way the mind goes out, if there's an unpleasant sensation in the knee, there is aversion arises in the mind. If there's something pleasant there, you want to hold on to it. Oh, please last a bit longer. I don't want you to go, that's rather nice. We want to hold on to it. But then there's a huge realm, which is the neither pleasant nor unpleasant. In a sense, we can't even call this neutral. This is actually a field of indifference if you can think of that. The field that we have is normally divided up into that which we want, that which we don't want, and that which we can't be bothered about. We're really quite indifferent to it, so that we don't even see it. It hardly ever becomes within our view whatsoever. Now, this is really, really important um, and it's probably the last point I want to make this evening. This is really, really important because it shows you actually how our f- the field of our life is divided up. Actually, we mostly see it just in terms of our like and dislike. It only often impinges on us when, you know, the kind of sense of the indifferent stuff, when it thrusts itself up in our face and it becomes something that we have to take a liking or a disliking to. So mostly there's a kind of huge grey area that we're just completely not seeing. This is the field of delusion. So if there's aversion attached with with unpleasantness, if there is craving and attachment associated with pleasantness, then there is delusion associated with that which we literally don't see. And again, it comes back almost to where we started, and actually most of the time we don't even really want to see. If it doesn't impinge on our two major areas of dividing the world up into the pleasant and the unpleasant, I'm not really interested at all. I'm not that interested in what goes on that doesn't impinge directly on factors which I consider to be pleasant or unpleasant. And then the story really begins in earnest. Because out of contact and Vedana arises tanha, craving. And that's where I'll cease tonight. (laughs) You can wait for the ending tomorrow. (laughs) Okay, I'll throw it again open to comments and questions if people have them this evening. Not at all. <clears throat> Not at all. I mean, the, the actual incident that occurs in the suttas is very much like that. <laughs> Basically, the Buddha is saying to Ananda, please don't grieve. Haven't you understood what I've said over the years? And you can imagine that with the close contact between a teacher and, and a student. But no, grieving is considered to be a very part, important part. People in Buddhist cultures grieve just as much as they do in other cultures. Um, but the whole point about grief is, is it's how you deal with the grief. Because there can often be um, attachment to grief as well. 
you know, attachment to it being around, you know, attachment to that feeling, the feeling of sadness, the feeling of grief, a holding on be- beyond what I would say is probably a natural process that works itself out. Not that the sadness and the wound will ever go away, but it becomes less sore, less tender. Holding on, attachment to the grieving processes encourages the woundedness to go on. You know, that real sense of woundedness. But I think, obviously, grief is a very, very natural process. I mean, I think we'd be very inhuman if we didn't grieve uh, about loss, and particularly the loss of close and loved ones. Yeah. So, it was fine for Nanda to be their child. <laughs> well, the Buddha didn't seem to think so. <laughs> I think the Buddha was basically thinking he should have understood a little bit more. <laughs> Actually, at this stage, I might add that Ananda wasn't awakened <laughs> as well. Yeah. But yeah, it's a story. It's a story within the text. Well, if it's really if it's really strong aversion or really strong unpleasantness, then you can stay with it, stay with it, and watch what happens. You can even even here use the breath by breathing and using the breath to breathe in to the actual, say, if it's a physical pain, for example, or feeling of unpleasantness in the knees. It's a very common one, or the back, shoulders, and neck. These are very common places where people experience discomfort. You can use the breath just to breathe into that, so you're still with the breath to a certain extent, but you're breathing in and staying with the sensation itself. It's interesting what will often happen, I don't say it will always happen, but what will often happen is that sensation will certainly change, as you would expect really. It will change. Sometimes it can completely surprise you by flipping into something neither pleasant or unpleasant, or even just going into slightly touching the pleasant before it drops back into the unpleasant again it will actually move and shift around it won't stay the same and that's one way of staying with it if you're saying well there's no way I'm going to come back to the breath well use the breath and with the sensation itself and stay with it watch it, see what happens be curious about it Well, it's very interesting the way you put that. That sounds like confusion to start with, doesn't it? And then I'm just, 
Yeah, I mean that's very interesting. But, but no, just the, I'm not so sure what I, I'm not sure. That really is the element of confusion. You know, that actually shows you that confusion is present in the mind uh, when even you're simply using a verbal indicator like that to yourself. Yeah. 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 Well, that's right. I mean, an awful lot of the states of mind that we're in will be confused states. I don't know where to put it. I'm not sure about this. What is it? That's confusion. The moment something like that's going on, you're into confusion. You're into delusion. But I actually prefer the word confusion. Mm. Yeah, that's that's delusion. Uh, that, let's get away from confusion. That's delusion. <laughs> I mean, nice little narrative stories. You know, to, it's nice, nice little fictions. Yes, we start, we start to discover these patterns by, by just engaging in these practice. Open yourself, when you open yourself up to this, to actually just beginning to view, and okay, in a sense it's very stylized, very idealized, to think where you can just view it in terms of these three compartments. Is, is what's arising in your mind, is it you know, lust or greed? Is it aversion or is it this? But actually what it just starts to do is to actually open you up to beginning to examine the quality of your mind just by having those three categories, that's all. Yeah. By examining what's the quality. So it's really like saying, well, if I said to you now, what's the quality of your mind at this moment? But you're doing it to yourself. What's the quality of my mind at this moment? Yeah. And the moment is the moment you've drifted away from an object. What's the quality of my mind now? You know, so it's being again interested in that. What is the quality? What actually is going on? Now, these are three broad ways of beginning to delineate what's going on in the mind. That's all. It gets much, much more nuanced as we, as we look through it. Unfortunately, 10 days for a kind of Satipatthana retreat is a very small amount of time. So we've kind of done it in blocks where actually if I was doing this, say, for a month, I'd be introducing things at a much, much slower pace and much, much more detail again, of the ways that we start to look. But you're getting a broad experience of the whole process in this. Uh, and this is one way of, again, just opening yourselves up to what's going on. Yeah. And then at the back. It's not a flash of enlightenment at all. It's that if you actually take the Jataka tales, it's, <laughs> I mean, the Jataka tales are about, supposedly about lifetimes of work, of laying down causes and conditions. No, it's not simply a flash like that. It's dependent on causes and conditions. It's actually dependent on an awful lot of investigation. Yeah. And that's what the causes and conditions lead to the awakening moment. And in a sense, the whole of the Buddha's, if you just take it within his lifetime, the whole of the Buddha's life really is the preceding conditions for that process. That's why the Buddha's life story shouldn't be taken almost literally, as many people do, because it's actually it's, um, it's a fiction in many ways. It's just a fiction which tells a story. 
it tells a very important story. It tells a story from the movement, in a sense, from this deluded state, the household state, into a state of awakening. Um, and so it's an allegory, as much as anything else, I think, to present, if you like, a, a, an ideal journey. An ideal journey. However, this ideal journey has already presented you with something that um, we don't have to go there, because he's saying asceticism, for example, doesn't work. Hedonism doesn't work. So we can learn something from that. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes people still drop into asceticism. Sometimes um, people still you know, hold on to the really strong sense of the hedonism of living the lay life here. So I think it's an allegory, and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there's lots and lots of causes and conditions that give rise. That's what we're doing now, actually. We're laying the causes and conditions down for something to occur. You know? Whether that is awakening, who knows? But we're laying the causes and conditioning down for certainty, for movement, for growth in this life. And that's what we're doing in the meditation process, thinking about ethics, thinking about morals, thinking about the way we live in general. All of this is actually, in some sense, is preparing the ground. Laying the seeds, you know, now doing some watering you know, to encourage the growth. You know, and it's, it's that kind of metaphor that I'd like to use, really, about it. I think there's three factors involved, actually. You're absolutely right about those two. I think they're very important. I mean, the meditation process is obviously very important. That's what's called bhavna mai panya, the cultivation of something you have studied, reasoned through, thought through, engaged with. That's very important as well. I think there's also the panya that goes with sila, with actually living and investigating your ethical moral life in this world. So I think it's actually threefold. And that would cover most of what we do. So actually, almost any, I think I mentioned this the other night, almost any way of looking at the Buddhist path is usually divided into threes of some form. Um, sila, I think, certainly has to be there. It's absolutely foundational, as I, again I'm repeating myself from the other night. It's absolutely foundational that we begin to look at our ways of living, our ways of living and being with others, how ethical we are, how moral we are. You know, that dialectic between those two terms that I talked about in terms of the treasures, you know, Hiri and Otapa, how we get that dialectic going about you know, what society demands of us from moral sense, what our own, own ethical sense is that's grown up, and how they interact and how they form us as people who live in a society, not just on our own, but live in a society with others here. That's absolutely crucial, absolutely crucial. But the other dimensions are equally important. You know, Buddhism isn't just about sitting on a cushion, as I hope I've made clear. It's not just about sitting on a cushion. Or, let's play, the teaching is not just about sitting on a cushion. So there has to be examination of that teaching. You know, whether it's through things like this, of hearing somebody sit up front and you know, discourse for nights on end, um, or whether it's you know, having CDs or books and things like that, but some way of contacting the teaching... But even that is not enough because you have to think about it. Yeah. The way of reading a Dharma book, actually, the way of reading Dharma books is not like reading novels. 
really a good Dharma book should be one where you read it in small bursts and actually contemplate what's being said within it rather than kind of just, as we often do, kind of nod our head in agreement without really thinking about it. Sometimes really good Dharma books are the ones that should challenge you, they should upset you. Really good Dharma talks are ones that should upset you to a degree, challenge you to get you to think about the issues. Um, rather than because actually sometimes we learn a lot more don't we from by things actually that jolt us a little bit than we do by constantly things that we agree with already it's kind of just self-affirming isn't it when we're going through a book and oh yes i agree with that i agree with that i agree with that you don't really learn a lot you can however take even that the agreement side into an investigation so try to think to yourself why do i agree with this what's what's the principles behind this why do I find this so compelling as a view? You know, what would be the alternative to thinking that way? There's ways of examining, you know, ways of really starting to get into a learning process with it. And so that learning, really, study learning, I think is an essential part. But then, of course, the learning has to come to an end at some point, and there has to be the attempt to practice what you've learned, to really engage with it. And that's what you're referring to in terms of the inquiry that takes place on the cushion. And that taking place on the cushion is another crucial factor. But it's a third, I think, of the practice. It's not the whole practice. Thank you so much for that question. Yeah. Um, was this about the sensual desire? Mm. And being aware when it happens, when it's a wholesome sensual desire, such as being... <laughs> <laughs> Give me an example. <laughs> The, defi- the defining factor, well, let's, let's go back actually to your, what you're calling good sensual desire, in a sense that there is no such thing as good sensual desire. There can be appreciation of the senses, you know, and when we step outside into nature, for example, around Gaia House and the beauty of the, of the natural world around Gaia House, there can be appreciation. It's the desire part that's the problem, not the senses here. Yeah. It's the desire part that's the problem because it ends up as being craving. You know, if I've really appreciated being here for 10 days and I go back perhaps to a city and I'm not in this, I can be thinking about this and craving actually being back here. You're not actually being where you are. Your mind is still back here. It's always being willing to let go. Yes. Yeah. So sense, I think there's a big difference between sense desire and sense appreciation. Sense appreciation happens in the moment, and in a sense you enjoy, you take pleasure in, and you let go. Whereas sense desire is that constantly wanting something, you know, constantly wanting that sensory stimulation in a particular way, whatever the way is that you desire it. Yeah. And that ends up as being grasping an attachment, attachment to certain things wanting them to always be there for you. So there's actually no problem with the senses, it's the attachment to the things of the senses that become the problem. And so the Buddha talks about guarding the sense doors. Very much in the yoga tradition, they have this very similar idea, of guarding the sense doors. I don't think this actually means cutting yourself off and becoming kind of otherworldly. What it means is it's actually watching craving arising for this. Watching it and, and, and trying to inhibit that craving. 
from being, and simply being here with the phenomena, you know, simply being here and hopefully being able to let it go as well. So I think that's what's involved with it. Yeah. So actually, as a, just to finish that off, actually as a phrase, sense desire is actually always bad because it's about desire yeah, and craving. It's quite like that. Yes, Yeah. Is there um, some example of that in the text or do you think it's more... It's really an extrapolation from the text. I mean, often it's talked about certainly in terms of becoming this and becoming that in terms of the text without very specifically ranging it down to the sorts of things I've mentioned. I'm just trying to put them into a modern world you know, because often this is what we're doing. So it's actually about how we form identity how we get our sense of identity in this world. Uh, and <clears throat> really what I was trying to allude to is we can form identity almost out of anything here. Could be the craving and the grasping after a particular profession to give me a sense of who I am in this world. But it could also be the identification with, and that's why I said it, I wasn't being flippant about it, or why I said it can also be a set of symptoms that says, you know, I am this, I am this particular symptom. often medical models do that they label people in certain ways and you literally become what your label is Um, and what I'm just really trying to point out is be aware aware of that as a problem that we can all latch on to something and create an identity out of it Embodied understanding. Mm. Well, I think the, the, for the preliminary way of starting this whole process going is mindfully reflecting on something. You know, so, for example, if you've heard the teaching on impermanence and you find yourself getting upset about something that's broken or being lost or you know, isn't working for some reason, you can always bring a call to mind. Actually, this is what reflection is. is an anupasana. It's a calling to mind of something that actually what I'm dealing with is an impermanent phenomena. You know, all compound phenomena break down. <laughs> you know, all compounded phenomena. You know, so you're constantly reminding yourself and that re- constant remembrance, and this is one of the elements of the term sati, of the term that's usually translated as mindfulness, constantly bringing that to mind in a sense, it's like inclining the mind in a particular way, um, almost a behavioural way, continuously. And so we begin to get a body of understanding. That's the way I'd put it, a body of understanding. This body starts to understand that most of the phenomena, if not all of the phenomena I'm dealing with, are actually impermanent. Now, that takes lots of practice. of keep on reminding yourself to do that. It's It's like a kind of... Always reminding yourself that things are not I, they're not me, they're not mine, they're impermanent, impersonal. Yeah, all of these things, these are the things that we can bring to mind in just ordinary situations. Nobody knows you're doing it either. <laughs> just one more question. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.